Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And my name is Greg Knapp. I'm in for Greg Corumbus. And as we said yesterday, a Greg for a Greg. And we're joined by Jim Garrity, as always, from National Review Online. This is the Three Martini Lunch. Our first martini could be a little surprising, depending on your point of view. Um, Sherry Campbell-Brown, senior United States Senator from Ohio. Surprise! Not running for president after all. A lot of people thought he would. He's got a history of winning in urban and rural uh, areas. He's got the liberal track record. He's a liberal social guy. He's got the blue collar thing because he's a Midwest guy. Ohio's a swing state. Are you surprised, Jim? A little bit. Uh, and we should keep our eyes on what is most important about the timing of Brown's announcement. Uh, I had finished my article on him last week. Uh, and if you, you know, I was going to say, got it right in there, got the traffic and all that kind of stuff. Cause if he had done this a few days earlier, I'd be really annoyed. Um, <laughs> but in the process of, of putting that together, look, I'm not going to say, you know, Senator Brown was a slam dunk to beat Trump, but I think you could put him along those who might cause the president bigger headaches in 2020. Uh, if nothing else, he'd have a really good chance of locking up the state of Ohio. And that's a pretty big and important one. And I think one of the lessons of 2016 was, uh, if you're good in Ohio, uh, and if the polling had indicated Trump was doing well in Iowa, then you're probably also going to have the kind of persona and issue focus and style that's going to work pretty well in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So, you know, th there was probably some reason to worry about this. The other thing, which I, I probably the thing that jumped out at me the most was, um, you know, indisputably, Sherrod Brown is a, is a populist. But if you look at the way he's covered, the way he's discussed, so a lot of people calling him centrist, moderate, uh, even people calling him a conservative Democrat. <laughs> Greg, there's nothing about this guy that's conservative <laughs> or such. His voting uh, uh, record is pretty much the same as Bernie Sanders. It really was astonishing that how much by, by just not wearing a tie and apparently looking rumpled, because that's the adjective that ended up in just about every profile of him, um, and by speaking at a lot of union halls, people saw him as not that liberal, when in fact he really was, and he had a 100% from NARAL, and basically every liberal interest group had rated him close to 100. A couple of the unions had him at like 83 lifetime. And basically every conservative group had him rated zero or four out of 100 or something like that. So um, for whatever reason, Sherrod Brown had managed to persuade a bunch of people in Ohio that he was a lot less liberal than he really was. Um, and it's also worth noting is three statewide races, 2006, 2012, 2018. They're all good races, all good years to run as a Democrat. Um, but I think you can argue Republicans didn't lay a glove on him. And for everyone who said, ah, you know, there's an allegation from his first divorce, allegation of spousal abuse, uh, that was brought up in several races and never did any damage to him. Um, so I, I just, you know, Sherrod Brown was not necessarily going to be easy to beat. It's, the, you know, people are now asking, well, why did he actually choose not to run? Um, every time Sherrod Brown talked about this, he did not sound like he was, you know, to use the cliche, the fire in the belly. Um, he's very happy in the Senate and may have looked at it and said, look, if the opportunity had been there, great. There's a small army of candidates. Uh, and Sherrod Brown probably figured, eh, you know what, I don't need this. Um, I'll let somebody else uh, uh, try to compete against Trump in 2020. Yeah, and there's one other little possible reason that's being floated out there that's interesting he's another old white man and the left really doesn't want an old white man as president this time there's bernie already out there maybe biden who knows 
a couple other old white men have decided not to run. Is that a thing this time around for the Democrat uh, primary that being an old white man is going to be a bad thing for you? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely identity politics is now very much coursing through the bloodstream of the Democratic Party. Um, now, it's worth noting that there's kind of a flip side. I think Michael Avenatti, the short-lived candidate who was, uh, he was a short-lived candidate and short, Greg, um, <laughs> said that, uh, you know, he was, you know, we can't nominate a, a woman or a minority. The country's just too racist. We have to nominate a white male. Uh, there was right. a considerable amount of, of pushback to that. But there, there are Democrats who ask themselves, well, you know, did Hillary be, being a woman, is that what hurt her in 2016? I think you and I would say, no, because she was a terrible candidate in a whole exactly. bunch of different ways. There, there's a long list of Hillary's problems. Being a woman is, is you know, way, way down there. But, you know, um, the, you know the, the Democrats, a, a lot of Democrats who think of themselves as the enlightened ones and that the whole flyover country is full of these, you know, deplorables and, and these masses of the great unwashed backwater hicks. And, you know, and by golly, we need to win those backwater hicks in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio and places like that. Um, so they may be afraid that nominating a woman or a minority candidate will be tougher to win. Now, it's worth noting, Greg, didn't somebody win in 2008, I, 2012? I, so. I can't quite remember. I, I always thought that was hilarious that, you know, all of a sudden, all these millions of people who voted for President Obama voted for Trump. Uh, yeah, millions of know. those people that so all of a sudden in the course of a couple of years they became these horrible awful racists i mean it's just uh, hey as long as you keep thinking that that 50 60 percent of this country is racist no wonder you can't get their votes you're insulting them all the time i mean yeah. they can't really believe that can they but i think they do there, there's one more wrinkle to all this which is that um you, know, you look at the turnout from 2016, it was you know, comparatively low by a lot of uh, recent presidential elections. And one of the places where, one of the areas where turnout was much lower was African-Americans. I don't think it's mm -hmm. all that shocking or surprising that African-Americans who were very excited to vote for the first African-American president, Barack Obama, and then reelect him in 2012, were not quite as enthusiastic about voting for Hillary Clinton for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and so if you're a Democrat and you really want to win in 2020, maybe it makes sense to have an African-American on your ticket uh, or at the top of the ticket in order if you think that'll drive up that. But on the other hand, we shouldn't probably make the assumption that, well, you know, African-Americans will vote for any African-American. It's worth noting, you know, Bar Barack Obama was not just, you know, some schmo. Right. He was a really good candidate. He was really charismatic. He, you know, got people fired up. And we all remember the hope and change and the Ch Obama chants and all of the Obama Sia hype in 20, uh, 2008. You know, that's yeah. uh, that's a big factor there that uh, not every candidate is going to be able to recreate. But uh, again, you know, it, it, I think Democrats are just so flabbergasted by 2016. They're second guessing themselves at every step of the way. But, you know, right. look, it's, at least they, at least they're past uh, identity politics and judging people by where they come from. Right. <laughs> yeah. Trump is in their head big time. And as Hillary Clinton found out, President Obama was likable enough. Uh, <laughs> all right. That is martini number one. All right, now we've got a bad martini coming up. We talked about this yesterday, Jim. It's the Ilhan Omar story, and it just keeps percolating. So the Democrat-controlled House has voted 407 to 23 in favor of this resolution, not condemning Omar, not just condemning anti-Semitism, condemning discrimination against Jewish people, Muslims, Latinos, other minorities, basically everything except Omar, and leaving her name out of it. So now the big defense that's amazing, and we've heard this before, We've heard this defense before, even with things like rape, believe it or not, 
in certain areas. Representative Jan Schakowsky, Democrat Illinois, comes out and defends Omar's anti-Semitic comments because of her different culture. Here's the quote, Jim. I want to tell you, part of being a Jew is to be welcoming to a stranger. And I want to tell you, Ilhan Omar is a refugee from Somalia. She comes from a different culture. She has things to learn. I'm not trivializing, trivializing excuse me, anti-Semitism or the things that she said or saying it's okay that she said them. But what I am saying is I think this is a learning moment for her and a learning moment for the caucus on how to get along. So because she came from a certain culture where, you know, it's okay to hate Jews. Therefore, you got to understand. Is that what she's really saying? Well, I was going to say, look, it's un undeniable. Omar has put the rest of her caucus into a extremely difficult position. Um, the fact that a chunk of the freshman class has decided stop picking on her by holding her accountable for what she says. You know, there, there should be some avenue to say, I'm troubled by what she said. I want her to stop saying these sorts of things. Uh, Shikowski said that Omar had apologized to her. Um, right. And good. That's a good thing to do. I think you can wonder about the sincerity of her apologies because she apologized for everything else. And then she keeps saying these sorts of things, but fine, you know. Um, but this line, you know, she comes from a different culture. She has things to learn. Greg, she's 37. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's not like oh, a kindergartner fell off the slide. They need to learn, you know, how to be better, how to be more balanced or something like that. No, like, come on. This is, this is a grown woman. She's been in politics for three years. Remember, she was in the state legislature of Minnesota before this. Um, this is not her first rodeo. This is not, you know, she didn't just fall off the back of the turnip truck. This is, you know, it's, there's something infantilized. It's something, something coming up. Right. You're like a child. You can't really say, you know, hold her accountable for what she said. And also, she comes from a different culture. She's been in the United States a long time. Okay, it's right. not uh, like she, you know, exactly. off the boat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she has to become a citizen in order to run for office. At least right now, you still have to be a citizen. Who knows in the future? But I mean, you see, she's been here long enough to become a citizen. She knows what it's like. So, really, you could say, Jim, that you know, uh, Congresswoman Shakowsky is insulting her insulting the culture she came from insulting the culture she lives in in her home district uh you could even say it, it might be islamophobic to think that oh all these people from the islamic culture are anti-jew i mean there's you, you're excusing the inexcusable because your culture is bad and so now we're saying that all of their culture is bad too there's a lot of ways you can look at this that makes shakowski look bad that makes omar look bad uh and the whole idea that you can excuse somebody's behavior because of a culture they came from. So if their culture says that women are second-class citizens, as many of those cultures do in the Far East or the Middle East, excuse me, is that okay then? Yeah, I mean, like this, this is probably the most condescending defense you could possibly make for Omar, which again, you know, I, I don't know whether, you know, Tchaikovsky is one of those Democrats who always wins pretty comfortably by a wide margin. Uh, I don't know if it'll be enormous backlash, but, you know, for good heaven, you know, <laughs> the, the, so wait, it, it is one of those things where this is one of the reasons a lot of us on the right just, you know, break out in hives whenever we see these kind of blatant exhibitions of identity politics, because it basically is, well, you're in this group, so you're going to have these rules and right. these standards and these expectations. And these folks over here, because they're different, we're going to have different expectations for them. And what's wrong, you know, what, what could be a career death penalty for, for this person we're going to leave some, you know, uh, we're, we're, it's not going to be it's as, as severe for this person because of who they are and where they come from. And I don't think that's, you know, 
eventually you just end up trying to make excuses for, for people you like, and you end up coming down on people you don't like, like a ton of bricks. And that's not good for the country, not good for our politics, and not good for our concepts of accountability and justice. Yes. And then Schakowsky went one step further. After she said anti-Semitism is a huge deal, she ended with this. But Islamophobia is also a huge problem. And I want to tell you that Ilan Omar is under tremendous attack, death threats. I think maybe she needs some security. And why? Because I think in part, the Republicans and the media have blown this up to be much more than it is. I don't want anybody to ever have death threats. But now it's the Republicans fault again, Jim. Yeah, it's amazing. How, I mean, uh, so, you know, the guy who shot uh, Steve Scalise, you know, <laughs> worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign. Look, we, we love the guilt by association card. We love the idea. Look, but that's first preface. No one should get death threats, right? This no, is, you know, you, you'd say that, I'd say that, everybody, one of our listeners would say that. Uh, I've gotten a few over the time, over the years. None of them ever turned out to be anything. It's usually some idiot, you know, you know I, I'm going to kill you has become the new uh, synonym for I'm angry at you. Yeah. Uh, we have a coarse, ugly culture. Nobody should go through this. But the thing is, in light of that, death threats are really not all that unique, rare, or special. Uh, professional sports referees get them all the time. Film critics get them all the time. Um, you know, we, we are a country in which people get really angry. And the first thing they say is, I'm going to get you, you know. Especially and, on Twitter uh, and social media yeah. now where, you know, it's so easy to do it now. So the first thing, we should not treat every single one of these as if you're, you know, being stalked by um, John Malkovich in, in the line of fire, right? This is the idea, this is somebody who's obsessing and coming after you. In some cases it is, but most, if you're going to be in public life, this is a really unfortunate fact of life. And we should not act like, you know, again, Omar shouldn't get this, but my guess is probably 435 members of the House get death threats in one form or another throughout the course of a cycle. Yep. Good point. So the idea is that this should not be, ah, well, Republicans are demonizing her. And that's why she's, no, this comes with the territory. I wish it wasn't. I'd love to see this, uh, this, you know, in an era in which people can communicate anonymously through the internet. And of course, there are some idiots who send death threats and who aren't anonymous. And uh, I guess maybe we should be thankful for them. <laughs> yeah. Out. yeah, exactly. And that was martini number two. Okay. Third martini. Now, we might have to break up this martini, Jim, because it's just getting too big and it might create a monopoly. The Verge is reporting Elizabeth Warren wants to break up Amazon, Google, Facebook, and the plan is to pass legislation that would designate platforms with more than $25 billion in revenue as platform utilities. See, we're making them utilities, guy, And that would be barred from owning the platform and participants on the platform at the same time. So try to break them up to some degree. Smaller companies would not have the same requirements. And Warren says she would appoint regulators to reverse mergers that have already been completed. Things like Amazon acquiring Whole Foods, Facebook on WhatsApp and Instagram, Google of Waze and Nest. So I, you know, I can see people being torn on this, Jim, because I've had a lot of people who are conservative tell me those Google, Facebook, Amazon, they're too big. They're becoming the modern day monopolies. They're running mid-sized and smaller businesses out of business. Something's got to be done. So if even conservatives are talking about that, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there are some people who are going to say, Jim, this is the least crazy, crazy martini you've ever had on this program. Um, and maybe just the, the, the fact that this argument could so scramble the traditional partisan and ideological lines, uh, I think is what makes it kind of fascinating. Um, P 
Peter Thiel, uh, who is kind of the Silicon Valley libertarian minded guy, mm -hmm. uh, spoke at the Republican convention last time, uh, wrote his book and had this very interesting argument where he basically said that actually we are now in a very pro monopoly era. The dynamics of Silicon Valley and our current market and technological environment lend themselves well to uh, to to monopolies. That you know, sure there are a bunch of search engines out there, but most people when they need to search for something have just habitually got they just go for Google. Right. Um, if you want to uh, uh, do a web video, chances are you're going to do YouTube. Yeah, I know you can do stuff with Facebook Live and a couple other ones, but in the end, you know, people just habitually clustered around the first one to do it. You, you can shop online on a whole bunch of different sites, but most people, ah, oh, look on Amazon. You know, people cluster around the first one to come to the market and generally the best one, the biggest one, and eventually the other search engines turn into AltaVista. You know, say, oh, I remember that. It's still around, you know, kind of right. fade away. Um, and this is the sort of thing where like, you're going to separate the totally pro free market uh, a clap, capitalist, you know, let the market decide conservatives from the, well, wait a second. You know, at some point, and it's, I think you can already reach the point when you see the debates about Facebook and Twitter, they ended up becoming very big marketplaces, uh, very big aspects of our public discourse now occur on these platforms for social media. And the social media companies that set them up were always quick to say, look, we're technology companies. We're not in charge of the content. All we're doing is the printing press. We're not, we're not writing the newspaper. It's done by our users. It's not our responsibility to go through and figure out what's happening on, on our platform. <laughs> bit by right. bit, that has become untenable <laughs> with everything from teens broadcasting beatings to Russian propaganda to all this kind of stuff where everybody's like, whoa, whoa, okay. All right, we got to start exercising some discretion about what's going on there. Um, but the problem is that if you get thrown off Twitter or if you get thrown off Facebook, as of this point, there are no comparable competitors. And I think most people would argue Facebook and Twitter are slightly different and they can't really count as competitors to each other. Uh, Twitter is for putting out snarky things uh, in, a, in 240 characters or less. Mm -hmm. And Facebook is for stalking your exes and seeing which one of your high school classmates have gotten fat. That's, uh, <laughs> that's primarily what they're best designed for. There you go. And, but anyways, and I, my suspicion is that probably a lot of Republicans are going to hear this from Elizabeth Warren and start saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, she's got a point. Now, the reasons Elizabeth Warren wants to break up the big social media companies <laughs> and the reason conservatives want to break up the big social media companies, I suspect they're diametrically opposed. Exactly. Uh, conservatives and would then, say, you're, you're coming down on us like a ton, a ton of bricks. And Elizabeth Warren would say, you're allowing too much hate speech, like, you know, conservatism. And there's the rub, Jim, is that even if you agree that these uh, vehicles, organizations, whatever you want to call them, are too big and are like monopolies. Well, you get the government involved in deciding who gets to regulate them. And then, like you just mentioned, two totally different reasons to regulate. And how does that impact free speech and the free marketplace and capitalism? It, it could go really bad really fast. Yeah. Again, you know, very much a who watches the watchman situation. I think we on the right can look at this and say, okay, something, something if not bad or dangerous, troubling is getting here. We've already seen uh, Craigslist basically wipe out the entire classified in <laughs> classified business of newspapers. Yep. Uh, if you work for a web publication <clears throat> like National Review, you know that a good chunk of your traffic comes from Facebook, comes from uh, Twitter, comes from social media platforms, and you have to um, adjust you know, your content. If it's not maximized for that, you're going to miss reaching some people who effectively log on to Facebook and don't log off that, you know, Facebook has become the internet for them. Um, 
But the question is, do you want government to come in and solve this? And I think, you know, a lot of conservatives probably would say, okay, wait a second, maybe that's not going to work out well. Um, so we need a question for these, you know, three or four big companies that are becoming a bigger, bigger chunk of not just our discourse, but our commerce, uh, how we obtain information in terms of Google. I mean, think about how much you could control about what someone learns about something by mm. determining what the first link on Google is. And by the way, the studies have shown people click maybe two or three links. They don't go to the second page. They don't go to the third page. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what shapes people's perceptions. So um, kind of a, a big, interesting menace that I don't know if any conservatives come up with a really good non-conservative plan to mitigate the monopolizing effects of these companies. Totally agree. That is tough. And we're going to have to talk about that one for a long time. That was Martini number three. My name is Greg Knapp. I was in for Greg Columbus, joined as always by the best gym we can find, Jim Garrity of Nash Review <laughs> Online. This was the Three Martini Lunch, and we hope to see you again for the next one.